Welcome back to another episode of the Building the Baseline podcast. My name is James McCool. You guys know me from the Twitterverse, Pater underscore DFS, and from various um, model building expenditures over the last couple of years. Uh, I have my new site, pater.ghost.io, that I've been running all of my models for the new year of 2020. Um, you know, just been doing all of the things that I usually do. Of course, this is the fourth episode of this podcast series where I'm talking to members of the fantasy community, uh, pros and Joes alike, both people who do this for a living and people who are just amateurs or anywhere in between, uh, just getting a feel for how the fantasy community feels about things and where they all come from and getting to know them. Um, this week I have on a very special guest, Vlad Settler. Um, how are you doing? Today? What's up, James? It's uh, it's good to uh, to be talking with you, and uh, you know, right before uh, the start of an amazing season. So we hope with baseball. Yeah, I mean, you always hope that it's going to be one of those seasons where all your wildest dreams come true. All of your uh, all of your low owned or uh, low ADP guys end up crushing, and you get on those gems. Yeah, I mean, this is now really the best time of the year, um, at least for me, uh, you know, getting ready to uh, to go to Vegas as I do every year, my, my favorite trip of the year where I literally see, I don't know, man, like over 100 of my, I don't want to say closest friends, but just friends that I've built over the years um, through the fantasy community. It's really a very, very tight-knit group. It's the people that I go play. Uh, at NFBC and every year we get together, we, uh, you know, have some drinks, brunch, um, you know, watch drafts and auctions the day before the main event. And then there's just this big giant, like eight drafts happening at the same time. Uh, the main events, like nothing else. So getting ready for that in a few weeks and just really pumped up about it. How long have you been doing that? The main event been going for about, I would say probably 10 years now. So I had played just NFBC online uh, a few years prior to that. And uh, a couple of my buddies convinced me to, to get out there and and give it a shot. And man, it was, I got to say like my, for, for the first time for somebody that's really, even back then really confident in, in my baseball fantasy skills and knowledge, it was really overwhelming. Like, you know, I thought I had everything um, pegged and, I'm sitting there in like the 26th round, like sweating. I'm like, these guys are, are something else. They keep snagging all my guys. All of a sudden my list, uh, you know, of like late round guys that I wanted to target are now just dissipating, you know, one by one, what am I going to do? So I started freaking out. And since that time, I feel like every year, no matter what, I'm just, you know, learning and learning to try to make myself a better and better player. Yeah, you always got to stay on top of the edge and stay ahead of those guys so they're not picking everybody off of your list before you can actually get them down there in those later rounds. And that's one of the things that I've never been really good at. One of the reasons why I stick to DFS is I am not a very organized or planning person. Uh, I deal with a lot of what is happening in the here and now. I deal with a lot of what has happened, but uh, I'm not really super great at planning multiple steps ahead. I'm, I'm really good at picking up patterns. Yeah. But I'm not super great at saying, all right, if, uh, I, I don't know, some random AAA guy ends up going ahead of me in the 25th round, then I need to make sure that I'm getting this guy. I have never been able to devise a plan well enough to come away as the winner in those kind of situations. Yeah, I mean, and again, a lot of it is just, just I don't know, kind of practice and, and getting a feel for, uh, I mean, not only the player pool, but kind of your competition as well. So you know, as you, in these events and especially a lot of the online drafts, you're, you're kind of seeing a lot of the, a lot of similar folks. And so, 
you know, there's certain things that you pick up up along the way. I mean, whether it's something they may have said on Twitter or just sort of uh, draft tendencies that you pick up on other people. And so that's a, um, sort of an unspoken thing about um, high stakes season long fantasy is, it, I mean, there is something to it where with DFS, there's, um, you know, there's, there's game theory and, and poker. A lot of times people say, you're, you know, you're not playing your cards or you're, you're playing the, the people in the room. Um, and, and it's really similar uh, to that in season long, um, especially when you get to those Vegas drafts, because, you know, a lot of people don't anticipate um, that pitching, for example, starts getting pushed up. Those resources start running thin and then you have to sort of determine whether you want to jump in on the action or you want to sort of zag when when others are zigging. So just so much to it and, and so much to break down about it. It'll be an interesting topic in a little while. Um but let's let's get to a little bit more about you instead of a little bit more about what you do. Uh, where did you come from? Like, what did what is your background in terms of when you were growing up? Like, what what brought uh, what brought me to America? Well, uh, my parents. Uh, I'm I'm Russian, um, Russian American. So I came out. Uh, my parents came out here when they were in their early twenties, um, and I was two months old. And so I was actually born in uh, in Rome, Italy. So back then late 70s, early 80s, a lot of Russian immigrants that were coming to the U.S. They had to live a certain amount of time while like the visas was, were getting finalized um, in, uh, um, in Italy and in Austria. And so basically I was just kind of born along the way, um, landed in Los Angeles, uh, grew up in the San Fernando Valley, had just like a regular, um, I don't know if people know like what you know, Russian American upbringing is, but it's basically like a lot of like uh, uh, borscht and, and different types of salami and a lot of yelling and, um, you know, and, and I guess what makes me sort of different from other Russians, I guess, in L.A. and the community is I kind of like fell in love with baseball at an early age. Uh, just, you know, baseball, like stats, numbers, memorizing the backs of baseball cards. And so um, in that respect, I mean, my life was pretty normal and standard other than I was just always, you know, watching as many games and trying to go to as many games as I could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, I mean, you said you had like a pretty regular upbringing, like where did you go to college? Yeah, so um, that was my only really time outside of LA. So I went to college up at UC Santa Cruz. Um, I just at the time I wanted to, uh, this is 97, wanted to sort of, um, you know, just not be in LA, um, just, you know, be, be somewhere different, have a different type of experience. And and um, boy, um, if you know anything about UC Santa Cruz, it's uh, quite the different experience. So um, for me, it was just, it was really eye-opening, um, just, I guess, sort of learned to be, um, I mean, not to say that I wasn't accepting of different types of people beforehand, but even more so there, it was just such a melting pot of, of, of people of, of different styles, beliefs, like uh, philosophies, and, and that was just, uh, for me, a, a really great experience. Um, kind of uh, partied, I think, a little bit too much uh, my early years there, and then just kind of realized I had to start to kick it into gear. Um, and the only thing that I, I don't know, you, you really never want to regret anything in life, but a lot of the people that went to college, uh, with me at East Santa Cruz back then, um, ended up, uh, basically going into tech. And as you know, you know, after, um, you know, the, basically the tech boom happened there in the, in the early two thousands and then obviously the inevitable crash, but a lot of, uh, people that I went to school, there are all like, you know, high end executives at like, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, you know, all these places, but either way, wouldn't trade anything in the world for, for my family and, and what I do in, in my life now. 
I think it's interesting when people say, oh, well, you know, if there's something that I regret from back in my life, then blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, you can't really regret things if you are happy with where you're at now. Because if you wouldn't have done those things, then you wouldn't be where you're at now. You'd be somewhere else. Maybe you'd be happier, but you exactly. don't know that. So you can't, you can't bank on the unknowns on that. But um, did you, so you said that you loved baseball growing up. Did you play baseball? No. School? So I was, um, I was one of those weirdos who, um, I, I guess I was like Jim Abbott in which um, I, you know, did have both my hands, but I could only catch and throw with the same hand. So we would play, you know, baseball outside with my neighbors and friends and they would all make fun of me because I basically catch the ball with my, with my left-handed mitt, take it off and then throw it, you know, back with the hand. So baseball was not my strength. I could hit a little bit, but I never played organized. Uh, I did what pretty much every like Russian kid does is I grew up playing ice hockey. Um, you know, basically put on skates is when I was early, uh, you know, at a young age. Um, I actually still remember the first uh, hockey game I ever um, played in, like, uh, you know, as a kid was the day that Kirk Gibson hit that home run in the 88 World Series, the game one again off of Eckersley. I remember because after that game, I, uh, after my hockey game, I came home, you know, the Dodgers were on. It was like the third inning. I watched the rest of the game. And I remember um, my grandparents didn't understand because like Russians don't really understand baseball, but like when he hit that home run and that was sort of my first, like, I know this sounds silly, but sort of my first gut moment, it was like earlier in the game. I'm like, man, if only Gibson gets an at bat, he was injured, right? He, he wasn't supposed to play only gets an at bat. I know he's he'll hit a home run when he did it. I went absolutely nuts. I like threw the remote. My grandparents like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like what got into you? But that's sort of my first big moment. It's still sort of my biggest baseball moment ever. That's so awesome. Um, what? So why did you? It, I I don't know if this is like uh, if this is a question that I can ask, but why hockey? Why why do so many Russian families like hockey? You know, it's um, it's just a, I think it just just stems from uh, people in Russia over the, those days. They had those super teams and and the Fab Five and. Um, all those years of Olympic domination, just, um, and it's cold there, right? So, you know, there's ice everywhere. People play hockey on the street and um, it's just a big part of the culture there. And so I think that was just the sport naturally, um, you know, that we, they put me in here. Um, the funny part was this is like, you know, this is late eighties. And so, you know, I was a big hockey fan growing up. And so the biggest thing ever happened, I remember still listening. It was, uh, it was, you know, it was like Jim Rome or Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and on the radio back then, you just, you know, listen to the radio in the car, they announced that Wayne Gretzky was getting traded to the Kings. And it was just the biggest deal in the world at this time. So Gretzky was going to get, you know, put on a Kings uniform. And that sort of transformed hockey in Southern California, at, at least youth hockey. So there started to be a big influx of ice rinks opening up. There would be all kinds of, you know, there are all kinds of teams started building. And so hockey really became popular after Gretzky came to the Kings. It was uh, 88 or 89, I believe. Um, and then just sort of took off from there. But yeah, that's, that's what I played as a kid. And then obviously when I went to college, UC Santa Cruz, there was no ice hockey there. So I was like on the, you know, the field hockey team basically. Right. Which is the way lamer version of hockey. Okay. And this is, this is an interesting conversation for me because I know literally nothing about hockey. I have been to half of a hockey game in my entire life. Uh, and my, you know, my parents never watched hockey. I played football and, and basketball and baseball growing up, but I never played hockey even once. So that's, that's interesting. Um, 
when when you were in college, did you like have a job as you were working through college? Uh, yeah, so I was um, I was one of the recyclers. So we had like a you know the 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 school. It's like UC Santa Cruz is a big beautiful campus. There's like eight colleges on it. You could get to class through going through the forest and you know see like deer along your way and. Um, you know, every campus or every part of the campus had their whole recycling system. So we were the guys um, in the truck, like, you know, just cruising around on the truck um, and basically just, um, you know, cranking uh, Led Zeppelin or Crosby, Stills and Nash and just, you know, picking up recycling uh, may or may not have had a dube in the back of the of the recycling truck. And just, uh, yeah, just uh, it, it was a pretty, pretty chill job. So you came. You come from this family that uh, kind of puts you into this spot of like trying to follow in the in the shoes of the people before you, and and you become kind of this black sheep as you go off and do your own thing and and focus on baseball and go to UC Santa Cruz and kind of sounds like you had a bit of a rad time in college. I also <laughs> had a rad time in the one year that I was there before I dropped out, but it's interesting that you went from that, which is kind of. Um, not as glamorous and not as like kind of nerdy of a life into who you are now. So when was the first thing that kind of brought you onto this path that you're on now? Uh, well, yeah, as far as the, like the fantasy uh, path and, and, and everything like that, I mean, I, I mean, technically it started in high school and I was younger, I guess you could say it was a little bit of a hiatus just because college was so interesting um, <laughs> with, with so many distractions. And so I didn't actually, I think I basically didn't play fantasy for a couple of years uh, you know, I started my senior year of high school, didn't play for a couple of years in college. And then senior year of college, one of my, uh, one of my buddies there, um, actually two of them got me into this game called uh, CDM uh, diamond challenge. And so in the nineties, this was basically, this is actually um, it's DFS before DFS. So, but it's basically a season long format. It's a salary cap based and you basically only get 16 pickups over the course of the year. Uh, baseball player, you know, players that you can pick up, hitters or pitchers. And every week you set your lineup, um, the salaries never change. And so it, this was my first exposure to sort of figuring out like, you know, who the values were. So you're like, okay, um, if an average player is um, anywhere from 1,000 to 1,600, but this up and comer, Johan Santana is only like 500, hmm, maybe I should put him on my team. You know, uh, you know, Raul Mondesi, I remember in the Dodgers was somebody else who's a great value. Um, John Wetland, um, obviously not a great dude from everything now, but like there was a time where he just was really cheap. He took over the closer role and dominated. So that was the game that I really got me into fantasy and, and understanding like market inefficiencies and values. Um, and then my first year playing is with my buddy, Steve Zachs, who got me into it. Our first year playing together, we actually came in fourth overall. And this thing at the time had like 30,000 entries. So obviously it was a big deal those last few weeks, you know, it was just so amazing. And we were poor college students. So, um, you know, so basically it was like, you know, it was like a low, low five figure payout. I think it was like 12 grand, but it was awesome. You know, like 21 years old, you know, you get that money right away. Then you realize you have to pay taxes on it, but that was kind of the start of it. And so I guess I'm a little lucky in that respect where I kind of started with my fantasy bankroll early on a lucky win and just, um, just kind of rolled with it from there. Like being born a silver spoon in your mouth, except it kind of fell into your face. <laughs> and that's, that's pretty nice. Cool. Well, so now you are in this position where you are one of the most respected season long baseball players in the fantasy industry. You obviously have a mainstay in terms of baseball content every single day. 
What does your day-to-day life entail? Uh, well, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, with fantasy guru, elite fantasy, um, you know, basically with, with, with them, um, basically since day one, since they started. And so, but, you know, contributing to, to DFS content, um, uh, you know, right now is the heavy period of, um, you know, really season long draft prep. So a lot of the stuff that I'm doing right now, uh, a lot of strategy articles, helping people sort of figure out, you know, not just the players of like, Hey, this is who you should grab late, but like, you know, draft theory and, and, and how you should, um, you know, be attacking your drafts during the season, helping people out in season. So um, my life is pretty much that, um, you know, I have a, you know, a, job, a couple of jobs that I, that I work like right now, um, you know, I just turned 40 this, this last few months, like, because I kind of spent my early twenties sort of lazy, like now I'm in the place where, you know, I'm, I'm working a lot, like between, you know, two full-time jobs, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working pretty much most of the day into the night. And I feel like now is the time while I'm still young, um, so to speak to like, just, you know, just try to do good for the family, make money, like put my, my, my son who's eight months old in a position to, you know, not necessarily not have to worry about money. Cause I want him to learn these things himself and, and make his own, his own self, but just, you know, do what I can to make things more comfortable. Like money isn't everything, but I want to, you know, be able to make as much as I can to make things easier for my family. It's good to build off that safety net, you know. I, I mean, when I was growing up, because I grew up poor, and uh, I, we weren't poor for like the first couple of years of my life because my mom had worked very, very hard to make sure that we were in a position that that we would succeed and that she would succeed. But then she got laid off when I was born because they couldn't have a woman with a child being a manager, and so that kind of put me into this position where now the way that I feel about money is very, very different than maybe somebody who had everything that they needed growing up. Uh, Maybe they didn't have all those problems uh, in terms of like getting dinner and stuff like that. So I, I identify very, very closely with the idea of wanting to make sure that the family is secure and wanting to make sure that you build up that, that safety net, like I was saying. So I, I identify with that. Yeah. And I was going to say, it's interesting you say that because like, it's a big sort of life lesson for myself because, you know, my parents and a lot of people that come from Russia, um, you know, who grew up in the sixties and seventies, I mean, it was communism then. So nobody was really, you know, I mean, you know, people didn't come to Russia with a lot of money in their pockets. And so, you know, like my dad, for example, became a dentist and, you know, went through school and was like, you know, washing floors at mental institutions when he first came to America while studying. And so he worked hard to sort of build what he had. But the mistake was what, you know, they did and what a, what a lot of Amer- Russian American pa- or Russian parents did to first generation American kids is they sort of spoiled them too much and gave them too much. And so I will be the first to admit that I definitely was. Um, you know, spoiled in that respect and didn't really have the true value or understanding of a dollar. It wasn't until I went to college and at some point they're like, we're not sending you any more money where I had to sort of figure that out. And it's one of the lessons that I've sort of learned, I guess, over the last 15 years and, and now, you know, work hard for everything I do. And it's one of the lessons that I think I'm going to want to pass on to my son is not make everything so easy for him, no matter how, you know, well, hopefully I'm doing and, you know, make him understand the value of the dollar and, and make him sort of, you know, learn and earn things himself. The other thing I'll say is a lot of Russians who came later, uh, like, you know, 15, 16, 
a lot of these guys are balling. I mean, these, these guys are, 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 you know, they started their jobs in right out of high school or like in high school and been doing the same thing for 20 years. And they're all really, really successful because unlike me who, you know, sort of lived in LA and just sort of a different lifestyle, they had to work hard for everything from day one. So they had a different like sort of value and understanding of the dollar. Yeah. And that is something that, the value of a dollar and the value of success on top of that is something that is super subjective. It's, it's within the eye of the beholder of what you consider successful or what you consider um, meaningful. But that, I mean, that's, that's something you and I could yeah. probably go into a very long podcast about life, but we are here to talk a little bit more about <laughs> fantasy. Uh, so what you, you said that you have multiple jobs do you have free time? And if you do have free time, what do you do in your? Free time? Uh, you know what? Uh, some parts of the weekend are pretty much the only, uh, pretty much the only free time I have. And at this point, it's um, really just spending time with with my wife and, and son. We just, uh, you know, try to take them out on the weekends. And you know, since obviously he's stuck at home during the week, uh, you know, just try to like take him to the park. Nothing super exciting. Um, you know, we we watch a bunch of stupid shows. Try to watch things that, um, you know, just really make you not think about day-to-day life. So we have, you know, a couple, a couple of dumb habits, like, um, you know, maybe people might log off at this point or you might lose respect for me, but I watch, you know, like watch like the bachelor just cause it's, you know, stupid, silly, uh, humor. And I mean, that's it. And other than that, I'm pretty much as immersed as can be, you know, on Twitter and the community with our subscribers, um, and just in the industry as much, as much baseball as I can. So when I'm not with the family, it's as much baseball as possible. I think people take for granted watching really dumb shit in your free time when you deal with as many numbers as you and I deal with and as many numbers as content creators and people who are deep in the fantasy industry deal with. I watch a lot of dumb shit in my spare time, dude. Like I I watch Family Guy. I watch Rick and Morty. (laughs) I watch uh, South Park. Like I I do not want because I don't want to think. I don't want to be super involved in whatever I'm watching when I'm in my free time. I just want to kind of cruise. So yeah, that's that's the perfect answer for what you do in your free yeah. time. Yeah. The brain, you know, the brain needs a rest too. Like we're, it, it's also good for our fantasy analysis to, to, to step away sometimes to be able to, you know, just you know, have a breather. Um, you know, this is a totally different thing, but it's similar to like, I don't know if it's similar, but like with my free agent bidding, like every Sunday I have 10 teams that I'm doing, you know, setting my bids for. And it's a very, you know, uh, it's something that takes up a lot of time. And if I'm just doing it like before the clock, then I'm sort of rushing my decision. So I think one of the things that I always do is be able to sort of, you know, put my bids in, step away, go do something else for an hour, come back. And I'm sort of looking at it at a refreshed brain and I'll be like, oh, wait a second. You know, why do I have Marcana so high up and, you know, or or see this as Aquino at this little when I think he'll go for this much. And so it's like things like that, I think is always good to sort of reprogram and, and, and refresh your brain. It's an absolute refresher. Definitely. Is there anything that you want to be working on that you don't have time for since you're watching all these dumb shows in your spare time? Um, honestly, I, I, you know, I would love to just get even better um, and perfect my DFS craft for, um, you know, for the upcoming baseball season. Um, just kind of be a little bit ingrained more. Like I do a lot of projections by hand. So I'll start in December and, and start doing player projections and, and, and rankings and cheat sheets. And I sort of tweak that as time, you know, as the, as the preseason goes and, and spring training and everything. But I, I guess I want to be, I guess I want to be more like you in that respect. Like I, you know, I, I respect a lot of, you know, your approach to things and, and how things are so math-based. I feel like, 
having, um, you know, the instinct for a lot of things, but not having the full analytical capability is probably the one thing I'm lacking. So that's where I would like to advance and, you know, guys like yourself and you know, other guys in the industry that see things from a different lens is, is I think where I want to improve. I want to ask one really quick question before we move on to like the next part of this, but you brought up the idea of intuition versus analytics. And I think that's a really, really interesting topic for people who are in the fantasy industry, because you, as a regular, you know, consumer of content, if you're consuming a whole bunch of content, what you hear is that analytics are God and you hear that numbers are God and you hear that what you need to do is you need to focus on the sample sizes you need to focus on all the numbers but there is something to be said about people who just know what is happening and there's something about about having the contextual instinct to put things together in the correct way jordan cooper who i'm writing the book with is big on that he's huge on on concepts and instinct so do you think that one has more influence than the other in your decisions you know it's uh it's a a uh, converged road, I guess you could say. It's definitely a combination of both. Um, you know, I have uh, my, my buddy, Scott Jenstad, who you know, who I've been playing fantasy leagues with, um, you know, went to his wedding and, or, you know, 15 plus years. And he always makes fun of me because I'm like, you know, oh, you know, you know, the gut, my gut says, blah, blah, blah. He goes, dude, that's not gut, that's your research. You know, like you, you know, these players, these situations, you can, you know, everything about them. It's, 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 it's gut-based um, analytics, I guess. So I, I don't think you can really have one without the other. And I think you have folks that are very old school and rely only on the gut and they're missing that analytical component. And the folks that are too numbers driven, um, you know, like a lot of projection systems that I, that, that I see out there are, you know, projections are projections and they're not meant to have that, um, anal- uh, that gut component, instinct component, but that's necessary too. And so I think there's a, a blend between the two. So I can't really say one is more important than the other. I think you need to have both. I like that answer. I, when you talk about um, gut instincts and, and like you saying, Oh yeah, I just want to go with my gut on this one. Um, that is what you have developed over looking at all of these numbers. You've developed that pattern recognition for when somebody should probably be better or worse than what you're looking at. And you, you don't need the numbers in front of you. You already know it. You know it from everything that you've consumed. You know it from all of your hand, handwritten projections. So I think that's that's a good answer. And probably something that people should be understanding is when you get a gut feeling, you shouldn't automatically say, oh, well, the numbers go against that. Because a gut feeling is your is all of the pattern recognition in your head from everything that you've consumed saying, Hey, you should probably look a little bit deeper at this guy. Yeah. And, and I think it, there was, uh, you know, that, that book by Malcolm Gladwell um, years ago, blank, I think really resonates with me that that initial instinct of something, I think it, there's a, a lot that can translate to fantasy. Like when you're about to start putting in bids or you're making a, a pick in your draft, like I like having a fast clock on a draft as opposed to a slow draft and a slow draft, I'll sit there and hem and haw and overanalyze a decision Tom blue in the face. And I'll end up sort of going against my gut, so to speak. But in a time draft, I'm already prepped. I'm ready. I know when I'm on the clock and I'm pressure is put on me. I need to go with what my initial gut instinct says. And I don't know how many times we've done it in DFS. Um, I can't even tell you, like it was even this past Saturday, I was playing NBA hoops and, um, you know, did a, did a, a live stream on, on elite and, um, 
you know, I had, um, uh, what was it? DeLon right in. And then I decided to switch him out to somebody else in the last like minute. And of course it ended up being the wrong move. And so that happens so often. And, and, you know, that, that's another thing and totally separate, but in DFS, I'm kind of a proponent of once you sort of made your, your lineup, especially like me, where I'm just entering a few by hand and it's got a little bit more of an instant component, like the worst thing I, I ever do. And I know if I tracked the ROI, I'd be negative on this as um, don't tweak in the last few minutes, unless there's some actual injury news or something has happened. If you have some new feeling, it's probably you just second guessing yourself, like stick with the lineup, you know, the roster that you built, um, you know, from the beginning, basically. I have a practice that I have now that I sh- wish I would have had over the years of the first lineup that I build for the day. I, I'll run numbers and usually I don't build anything until a couple hours before sleep, but um, the first lineup that I build, I never change. I'll never tinker and I will never change that first lineup unless there's injury news. Like if somebody gets injured or if somebody is now like a must play, then yeah, you go in and you change it. But if nothing changes that should affect your lineup, you shouldn't be touching the first lineup that you build. If you're going to build three lineups, don't touch that first one. Differentiate on the other ones. Because that first one is where your intuition mm-hmm. lies. And that first one is the one where you're making those subconscious decisions that you are you shouldn't try to second guess. And I think that that is something, if I'd have had that over the last couple of years, I would probably retire, uh, maybe live in a bigger <laughs> house. Yeah. Yeah. Have a nicer yeah. car, you know. Uh, that's the problem with football, but that's the problem with football, though, too, because you start, you know, I'm about you, but start the prep early in the week, and you're tweaking that cash game lineup all week long, and then all of a sudden Saturday, you're like, oh, I have an epiphany. Oh, I need to make this change. Like football is the toughest because you're waiting all week uh, to make that final decision on your lineup. You know. God, I hate week long sports, dude. <laughs> <laughs> dude. And that's one of the reasons why we we talked about the grind earlier in, in season long compared to DFS. And it's it's one of the reasons why I like baseball DFS is one, day baseball is great because well, I mean, it might not be great this year. I wake up a lot earlier this year than I used to, but I would only have the time in the in the morning to run my models and run my numbers and then build a lineup and then the, the like slate would lock at eleven. And so I didn't have time to make those, those tinkering, like double thought things. And in the NFL season, you're right. It's the worst because you'd be like, oh yeah, you look at the games and you look at what the numbers are saying, like straight off the bat. And you're like, oh yeah, I should stack the bucks mm-hmm. this week. And then by freaking Saturday, you're stacking the jets for no reason, like yep. literally no reason other than there's maybe a slight boost because of the numbers, or maybe the defense is slightly worse, or maybe the weather's like, you know from your gut and you know from everything that you have read and everything you've researched and everything you've done, the Bucks was right. So you should go with that. It, and you know what? It's always better to lose with your gut than if you're second guessing yourself, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. I, that that's something that is absolutely not talked about enough is that, and it's why I wanted to go on this little tangent was that analytics and, and your intuition, they work together. And when you get those intuitive thoughts and you get those, those ideas of, I should play this person, you, maybe you should, man. I, maybe you should have a couple more lineups instead of just playing one lineup, have like five lineups for the day. So you can follow those intuitive plays. Yep, absolutely. Agreed. So we'll move on to this next part, which is uh, the fantasy industry in general. And I already asked you about what your start was in the fantasy industry. And we know that you luck boxed into a 12K win. And that's that's cool. You're humble bragging. That's awesome. Um, but 
when you talk about what you do now, you are a season-long player mostly, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of both, but I think it's it's different because um, depending on the sport or the year, like you know, unless I'm I'm, I'm hitting some qualifiers or or or, or bank a, a big uh, tournament, which you know obviously has happened a few times in in baseball over the last few years it's not as bankable or as predictable as fantasy sports. You know, like I'm spending quite a lot of money on my season long entries. I, you know, I play a a $1,700 main event every year. That's the draft in Vegas. Uh, Rob Silver and I split um, the the platinum, which, um, you know, at this point able to, to sort of just replenish my fantasy uh, entry fees with previous year's winnings, but that's a 15 K entry. It's basically sort of the granddaddy of, of uh, leagues and it's just a 15 team closed league live draft. Um, and so I've, you know, it's, it, it's taken me some time to get there. Uh, but I mean, you know, this is my, uh, I, I know that I can at least profit every year. And that's what I've done the last eight consecutive seasons. I've profited in my season long fantasy baseball. And so that's always predictable for me. It's a market that, I mean, granted um, I next year or this season, I can get absolutely handed my ass or my ass handed to me and, and, and go down in flames. Like anything can happen. Um, but there are just certain leagues or certain, like my style in, in some way, I'm always able to sort of number one, sort of spark market spot market inefficiencies in the draft and do well in the draft and then uh, grind all season long on the free agent bids. At some point, you know, people stop giving up. It becomes easier to get the players that you want. And I'm able to sort of put myself in a position to at least cash in a few leagues. Well, and you mentioned that the reason why you care so much more about your season long is because you have such a larger chunk of equity in your season long. And that is something that has come up with other people's conversations is they're like, well, I don't have time for season long because I have so much more money invested in DFS. And it's interesting that you are flipped in that manner. Yeah. It's just what I started. It's just what I've started with. It's something that is, it's, and it's something else to me. There's, um, I love the, the, the grind of of the long season. You know what I mean? I like, uh, you know, this draft prep season right now is the best time of the year, like late uh, February, early March. I'm, you know, listening to to everybody's podcasts. I'm, you know, immersed in the community. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing more drafts than I should right now. I try to do as as many non uh, free agent bidding leagues as possible, but just to kind of get my draft fix, but like tis the season, like now is the time where I just feel, you know, just really, you know, really in it. And being at, at a draft, whether it's a live event or even like these online drafts, I, I just, I, I feel at home. I feel comfortable being in a draft. I love the, the competition. It's like, you know, probably not the same to somebody that's like, you know, a professional NASCAR driver, but like, that's what it's equivalent to, to me. I'm in the, in the driver's chair of my draft and I'm, you know, and I'm loving it. When you play, and I'm not sure how to really ask this question for season long, because I don't talk to too many season long people, but when you play, are you more of an optimal or contrarian player. And I guess what I'll ask on that is when you are approaching a draft, how much do you depend on ADP versus your own projections? Um, so to me, the, the way I look at ADP is it's basically like retail price um, for it's set on, you know, really based on, I don't know what. And so that's what I'm doing throughout the draft is I'm finding that balance between my projections and where I think guys should be going and where the market dictates or says that they should be going. And I find that happy medium because there's no reason for, you know, for example, in these TGFBI industry drafts that are going right now, there was somebody that tweeted that they, 
They took Clayton Kershaw 18th overall. And that doesn't make any sense because, eh, well, he's going in the 40s and the 50s. So knowing that you'll probably get a pick back in that range, it makes sense to take someone else instead of giving up, you know, instead of basically giving up value, free value, knowing that you potentially get Kershaw later and, and, and get someone else before that. So for me, it's just like a constant puzzle. Like, you know, um, I know this guy's ADP is coming up in two rounds, but um, it, but I really want him here. It depends where I am in the draft. If it's early in the draft, there's less margin for error. Um, at some point, people say, hey, just get your guys. But like after after pick 100 or, or whatever it is, uh, you, you know, there you sometimes have to reach. You know, ADP just kind of gets thrown out the window and you want to get your players, but you want to make sure you're kind of, you know, knowing when they're coming up so you're not giving up the value of being able to get someone else and then your guy later on in the draft. And that likely kind of harks back towards you saying that there is, uh, there's definitely a part of it where you have to know who your opponents are and know where they're probably going to be trying to pick your guys. Right. Well, actually that's exactly what I'm doing in this. Um, I was you know just tweeting about it, um, you know, t- Tuesday as a recording um, in the TGFBI draft, I got the pick 14 out of 15. Um, and you know, it wasn't one of my first selections, but that's what I got. I'll draft from anywhere. Um, I took Juan Soto at 14, his ADP is like 10. So for me, that was a no brainer when he popped up there. The only thing was at that point, I, you know, pitching is important in the, in this type of formats. And that's right around the area where Walker Bueller goes. And so I wanted to leave that, you know, you pick 14 and then it's the snake. So then there's another guy drafting 15, 16, and then I pick 17. So I'm thinking, I look at it and I'm like, hmm, I really want Bueller. I can't really pass up on Soto. And I just made an assumption. I'm like, okay, I don't recognize the name of this player here at the 15. So maybe he's not an NFBC player. If he was an NFBC player, I know he'd probably for sure take Bueller there. So I'm going to go ahead and take my chance. I'm going to grab Soto and hope Bueller comes on the way back. He ended up grabbing, uh, you know, uh, Bregman and Jose Ramirez and so, you know, I was able to get Bueller on the way back. I guessed right. I could have easily, you know, guessed wrong. On the next set of picks, you know, I was picking third round, fourth round, pick 43, pick 47. Um, I wanted Vladimir Guerrero. I then look at the guy's roster. I see, okay, he's got Jose Ramirez, who is a third baseman, and Alex Bregman, who's shortstop third base eligible. So now I know pretty much he'd be pretty crazy to take Vlad Guerrero on that turn. So what I'll do is I'll grab someone else. I took Jordan Alvarez of Houston and then save Vlad Guerrero for when he came back to me. So I was able to kind of keep him from getting Jordan Alvarez. I got the guy I wanted there and still got Vlad Guerrero on the way back. So again, that's just, you know, it's different, but it's sort of just an example of of game theory with drafts. Kind of leads right into the next question of, do you think there's still edge to be had in, in season long baseball? Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, it, it comes down to, I don't know, I think a lot of one thing that's hard for people to do is to separate fandom from fantasy. Uh, for me, I always look at it as it's it's fun. It's what I love to do, but it's also business. I'm, you know, I'm trying to make money at it. And so, you know, people are like, oh, you know, you love, uh, you know, Bueller and you love Kershaw and Justin Turner. And I'm like, well, I'm actually try to be harder on my own teams. I try to purposely um, avoid that inherent bias towards the Dodgers who I love. And because I watch them and because I pay attention, I kind of know, you know, when, you know, guys are pressing and maybe I, you know, should be avoiding them or, you know, somebody's like always injured and, you know, maybe should be drafting them. So, you know, sort of fandom and fantasy is one thing. So there's an edge there. 
And then there's an edge in people that just read everything and then sort of, I guess, maybe don't take their own path and don't make their own decisions and just, you know, they, they read too much. They take too much advice instead of sort of following your own, you know, instinct and research combination. You know, you sort of have to blaze your own path and find out, figure out yourself who, who the values are based on all the information you gather. For sure. Yeah. I, I had talked to you a little bit about getting into season long and then I had to start a stupid website. So I didn't have time to actually jump into season long, but I, I think that there is certainly something to be said about um, the predictability and the, uh, the sample sizes involved in having a season long draft. And you'd mentioned that a couple of times that the predictability of it and, and the bankability of a season long draft just makes more sense. And is something that you are more inclined to hang your hat on, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a lot of it too. It's a component of, I mean, it's, it's, it's partially, it's, it's my community too. You know, it's, it's people that I feel very comfortable with. Like if you, you know, I mean, if you just kind of notice and a lot of people make fun of the season long baseball community, like, um, you know, there's, you know, all these DFS fights and fires going around and being people, you know, slinging mud at each other. And we're sitting here over here, like praising each other and retweeting each other. And you know what, I'm fine with that. I don't need to be the, you know, the cool kid on Twitter. I'm happy being like who I am. I'm, I'm happy with the community that's around me. I'm, I, I like to, you know, I feel like I'm in a position where I like to support um, young talent when I see it. I know that there were people in the industry, uh, um, you know, Kevin Adams, Jeff Erickson, Chris List, Jeff Mans, people that, you know, gave me a shot um, when I was a, a, basically just a, a player and just coming up. And so that's one of the things I like to do is really like make sure to highlight people that not just like, you know, anybody, but like people that I actually see. Um, I, I even ask sometimes, you know, somebody who, who maybe I, I see tweeting a lot or, or very interactive with my tweets. I, I you know, I DM them like, hey, send me your article. I'll read it and I'll be honest. If it's something like, hey, I think you should, you know, I'm not shy to be like, hey, I think you should work on this or, hey, this is great. That's a great writing style. Or, you know, I'm really in a, in a place where I feel comfortable helping people and also, um, you know, making sure to promote people that I, I feel deserve attention and, and deserve to get more, more eyes um, on them in this world. That's that's something that I think we really, really as a community should be doing more of in the fantasy community in general, not just season long or DFS, but uh, lifting each other up because there's so much of the zero, the zero sum game of tearing each other down on Twitter and just like trying to be the coolest dude on the planet and, and making other people look bad when if we as a community lifted each other up there are such such wild things that we could do and especially in you know more i think more in season long because when you play longer term stuff you develop these longer terms relationships where the people that you see that you have seen for the last eight years at the um main event like those relationships you can trust these Mm -hmm. guys and, and you know these guys and you've developed these connections with these guys. And so it's easier for you to go to them and like go to Rob Silver and, and split um, a platinum entry. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, you know that he's, cause you're going to see him next year. If he screws you over, then you're going to see him next year and be like, well, now I have to kill you. <laughs> so like that, that is something that is, I think more um, valuable and, and that, that long-term thing is more valuable than the short-term relationships that I think a lot of people make in the DFS. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's like the joke, a Canadian and a Russian walk into a fantasy draft right now. 
<laughs> no, and you know, and that's one of the things that I, I guess gravitated me just, you know, towards you and your account. Like I love the fact, and you know, obviously I'm not trying to for us to be like, you know, oh, you're great, you're great, but it's true, like your your style, you just don't give a shit. You just are who you are. And the people that like you follow you and gravitate towards you and they'll sign up uh, to your side and, and follow you. And that's what it's all about, man. I, lo- I love people that are just, you know, genuine, they're honest. And that's why, you know, anytime that you're putting anything out there, I'm taking it in, I'm reading it, I'm learning from it and think we learn from each other. Well, I am honored, sir, because you are way cooler than I am. Uh, but let's, let's not like gas yeah, yeah. up here too much. We can do that after the call. Uh, let's, let's move forward into what do you think the future of your industry is, which is season long. I, I mean, we've heard a couple guys, you know, we heard Derek Cardi and we heard, uh, the, the thoughts from Arturo on what he thinks DFS industry is going to come into. So what do you think is, is held for the future of season long fantasy sports? That's a great question. Um, it's, it's one of those things where I think it's, um, it's tough to gauge because we're, we're in our little bubble, um, you know, our, you know, a couple thousand of us, like in this season long, at least fantasy baseball space, fantasy football is a different animal. That is, it's different because, you know, it's, it's, it's water cooler talk. Like, you know, like I, any job that I've ever been at, um, random people know a little bit about football and are playing, you know, I'm in a league in a work league with my accountant and, you know, our, you know, controller and our, these supervisors, whatever. And it's different with fantasy baseball because it is harder. And so I do think it's one of the things that we need to be cognizant of is how we can help sort of grow this industry. Um, I know the guys that I'm with, we're going to be playing for whatever, you know, I'm going to be playing. I tweeted about the other day. I'm going to be playing till, till my, till my final days. I think still going to these drafts with a lot of the same people. I'm, you know, I just turned 40. Um, and I noticed that there is some young blood, but that's just the representation on Twitter. So the question is, how do we make fantasy baseball exciting and marketable to a generation that, you know, is, I guess, a little bit more, um, you know, needs it now, right? You can find uh, when I was in school, I, we'd have to look things up at the library or encyclopedia. And now you can find anything you want in, in a second. So a game that takes more patience, you know, how do you build it? And that's something that I haven't really figured out. Like you make the season shorter, do you, you know, like, there's so much to it. Um, and I just don't know if I have an, an exact answer right now, but I'd love to figure it out. The idea of like quarterly seasons would be kind of cool, but I think the main problem is that you need to talk to fucking Rob Manfred about his blackout policies, yeah. because the main reason why NFL season long fantasy sports is cooler talk is because everybody has access, you know, I like everybody sees everything whether they have a package or not, you're going to see the highlights. You're going to see the lowlights. You're going to see the stats. You're going to see the scores. Everybody sees it. So when you have this, this kind of zeitgeist massive thing that everybody is involved in um, and everybody can access, then of course that's going to be what people are talking about at work. With baseball, it's so hard to just watch a freaking game mm-hmm. that – it's impossible to grow the interest in something that is uh, kind of niche, like fantasy sports of a game that people can't watch. Yeah. And I mean, you know how crazy it is in, in LA at least, right? Like, you know, people that had direct TV don't have access to the Dodger games for many years now, unless there's a game on like, you know, the, the local station, um, 88, 90% of the games they can't even watch. Like you can't even watch, and you have to literally switch to a different cable provider in order to watch your local team. Something as 
very inherently wrong with that. Uh, talking to Rob up in Canada in, in Toronto, it's the same thing now all of a sudden um, with the Blue Jays. And apparently, um, and I don't quite remember the details, but now there's going to be uh, blackouts there as well. Um, obviously, <laughs> Rob Manfred, um, you know, hope he's not listening to this. Maybe, hey, maybe maybe he's a James McCool fan and he's going to listen to this podcast. But uh, <laughs> I mean, that's just crazy, man. It's it really it's really hindering for for the industry, for baseball in general. Yeah, it's it's asinine. It is just, and I understand that they make money hand over the over fist from the deals they have. I understand that it's all about money, baseball. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's all about that, and and I know that it is. And the the problem is that if they keep it, if they keep it up over the next ten years, and I said this on Twitter, I went on this little rant the other day. If the instant that they make games accessible, baseball will grow. The instant that they do it, 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 it will take a month for people to like start watching games again. If they make them accessible and they put them on streaming sites and like they just do their thing, it, it, it'll grow quickly yeah. because people want to watch it. Yep. People are not happy that they can't. And I, it's it is so asinine that they have all those blackouts. And if, for the future of, of MLB season long fantasy specifically, um, I'm not sure what else you can do other than maybe breaking up the games or making a more accessible way for people to consume content because without the content, they'll never be interested. You know, on one uh, positive note, um, NFBC uh, is basically having a record year in signups. Like we're not even in March and they're, you know, it's because they have a lot of different offerings. Now they have lower price points for leagues. They have auctions. They have like guillotine leagues now. Um, and it's through the roof. I mean, everybody that at least in, you know, just having, you know, new people sign up every day. So that is at least a promising sign. So a lot of people, um, you know, getting in, getting a little bit more serious about their fantasy baseball. Well, I hope that it continues, at least for your sake and for the sake of season long fantasy in general, because I like season long fantasy, even though I'm not very good at it. I think that it is really, really cool. And I think that it's cool that people can develop the relationships that you've developed with the people um, that you see every year at the main event. But if you could be doing anything other than what you are doing now, what would it be? Um, that's funny. I didn't think about that until just now, but um, probably what I dreamed about as a kid, and that's to uh, to be a uh, the the announcer, um, play by play man for the for the Los Angeles Kings or the Dodgers. Um, that's, that's what I dreamed about as a kid. Uh, when I first got out of college, my first job was with Fox sports, uh, uh, Fox sports West and got to work, you know, local Kings games, Laker games, um, you know, got the hand lineups to Bob Miller, who's basically the Kings announcer for, for, you know, about 40 years or so. Um, and so that's a dream. I always wanted to be, um, you know, calling a game basically. So if that's, if I wasn't doing that, then that's what I'd be doing. As far as short-term goal goals, um, I want to get on, uh, I want to be, talking fantasy baseball on the television. I want to be, you know, whether that be, you know, through our own channel or MLB network or ESPN, I, I want to help build the game. I want to help be on the forefront of, um, of it just becoming mainstream. Like you're watching games and you're seeing, you know, stat lines, um, you know, rolling through at the, on the bottom ticker. So would you say that's your goal is to be uh, kind of like a, a face or, or a, a media coverer of MLB season long? You know what? So there, here's the thing. If it meant me giving up playing, I don't know if I would do that because there's just this um, this love for it that I have for for drafting and building lineups in my community. Like, you know, you, you can't really put a price on that sort of thing. So it would kind of have to 
work and, and coincide with me not having to give up the the freedom to uh, to draft as many teams as I want. Yeah, I I understand that 100%. I have said multiple times on this podcast now that there is the golden triangle of um, content, play, and personal life in this in the fantasy industry. And I think you really get to choose two. So if if you're you know, two are playing and, and your family, and then the content that you can create on top of that, instead of being a media, you know, influencer or whatever you would want to call it. Yeah. Then I, I think that that's, those, those are the two that you choose and there's no wrong yeah. answer on it. And I think that you would be a fantastic, I, I mean, so many people came to you when you announced you were going to be on this podcast and like, Oh, why don't you have like a mainstay podcast? And it, it's because of the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it really all comes down to, and this is great. Like, I, you know, I mean, coming on, on and talking to you and talking to other people, like this is where I truly feel alive just to be able to, and you know, like I said on, tweeted the other day on, on, on a uh, separate podcast, like I'm just probably, I think it's just a classic overshare. I just kind of, I'd rather just be myself and open it up, open up and just let it all out there and, you know, let it go. Um, maybe not all my, all my, uh, all my deep, deep sleepers. I guess you can't call them sleepers anymore, but, uh, but you know what I mean? Yeah, totally, totally get you, totally get you. So we'll we'll close this out, and uh, we'll we'll get to these like kind of last thoughts. And if you could give any piece of advice to those out there, what would it be? And it, it doesn't have to be fancy, or it doesn't have to be season long. But if you could give any advice to anybody out there, what would it be? Oh man, I I, I want to try to give something that's not generic, and I, I don't want to just say just like you know be yourself or whatever. But like. Um, uh, be humble, I guess. Um, know that no matter how good you are or think you are at something, um, you, there's always ways to get better and to never basically feel or you know think that you're the smartest guy in the room. There are all kinds of people um, that you can learn from and, and, and get better. And you can don't always have to learn from your own mistakes. You can learn from other people's mistakes. So, um, so I guess that would be it. That's and that's a good way to put. That's a good thing to say too, because you are constantly in the room with somebody who is going yeah. to be smart and somebody who has good ideas, and especially for somebody like you who does go to these events and is constantly learning from the people around you. We can do that on Twitter. We can do that on our social networks, and I don't think that enough people take advantage of that and try to learn from the people that are within these these virtual social spaces. So I, I think that's a really really good thing to let people know to do. Um, do you have anything coming up that you wanted to talk about? Anything that you wanted to pitch out? Uh, I did want to throw a, uh, a special deal out for, uh, for your listeners. So our, um, our betting and um, DFS site. So if it, basically if you, if you go to elite sports, betting.com slash free week, and you use the promo code baseline pod, you'll basically get a free week of um, all the content there as far as, um, you know, bets to make, um, you know, monkey knife fight is one of our partners there. And obviously, you know, um, access to, to mad lab and his uh, MMA stuff, which obviously that guy crushes it every week. Uh, baseline pod is specifically for the listeners here. You get a free week and basically don't even have to use a credit card. So just that. And then, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the season long stuff, getting ready for Vegas. And obviously I'll try to stay out there on Twitter as much as possible at Roto gut and make myself available to people. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on this podcast, man. It really is my honor. Um, I, like, I respect the hell out of the work that you do and the work that you have done for so long for so many people in a space that really needs good content creators. Because like you said, um, 
the season long fantasy and especially baseball season long fantasy is something where if you can grow the game, um, you should. And if you have a platform, you should. And you are one of the people who is doing a very good job of that. Uh, so thank you again for being on. Yeah, the, the, the sentiments are, are um, you know, absolutely mutual. So really, really appreciate you having me on the pod. And uh, hopefully it's uh, not our last time together. Yeah, for sure. Let's let's keep trying to let's let's make a podcast. Yeah. Let's make a podcast. Uh, this is James from Cool. Thank you all for listening. Um, this has been Building the Baseline episode four with Vlad Roto Gut. Thanks for listening. Have a good day, guys. 